she was, uh, she was probably a, a social outcast. <clears throat> we read about her a little bit last week. Uh, she came to a well uh, to get water at the, uh, an unusual time of the day. It was midday. Nobody did that. It was the hottest time of the day. She was alone. Nobody did that. Uh, women in her locale would come together either early morning or late in the evening when the sun went down, be more comfortable. But there she was alone. And so we can imply that something went wrong in the way she lived her life because no one wanted to spend time with her. Uh, she lived in a place called Samaria, as you remember. It was the uh, central province of ancient Israel, Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. Uh, the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along at all. Uh, the Samaritans embraced uh, a religion incorporating some elements of Judaism and then some foreign elements, and the Jews could not handle that. And sometimes they would even bypass that particular area entirely to get to Galilee. If they were going from Judea to Galilee, they would go the long way around so as to avoid what they would consider to be defilement by being in Samaritan territory. This woman was a Samaritan woman, and she was met at the well, you recall, by this Jesus, a Jewish man. My goodness, he broke all the rules. He was uh, a Jewish man having conversation with a Samaritan woman, and and he was talking to her about things she didn't quite understand. She was focused on meeting realistic physical and material needs. She was concerned about water, but he knew about the concerns in her heart. They were unstated, but though he was tired in his humanity and though he himself was thirsty in his humanity, don't miss the point, he, he remained fully divine, and so he had the capacity to peer into her heart and he went to the heart of Samaria because he wanted to penetrate the heart of this lost Samaritan woman. And he spoke to her using water as a sort of a teaching tool. He spoke to her about the possibility of living water welling up within her and changing her entire life. And she didn't get it. And so she said this, if you want to follow along, it's in John chapter 4. Uh, verse 15. That's where we'll begin tonight. John chapter 4, verse 15. You heard what the Lord offered to her, living water. You know, and I know, he wasn't speaking of H2O. He was speaking of eternal life, and uh, she didn't understand it. So she said this in verse 15 of the fourth chapter of John's gospel. The woman said to him, sir, uh, give me this water. So I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Um, satisfy my literal physical thirst. Absolve me of the responsibility of having to... Uh, do you know the word schlep? It seems to fit here. It's kind of a Yiddish word. She said, I'm so tired of schlepping the water. That's I don't know what the word schlep means, but it fits, doesn't it? You, you get the idea? She's, it's if this unusual Jewish man could, could relieve her burdens, well, she's really, really interested, and so that's what she's talking about. And she didn't get it. You and I know at this point she didn't get it, but this is what she did get. 
she got that this unusual man who's taking time with her now made an offer of some kind of good water, better water, and uh, something in her told her he would be willing in, to give it to her. So that much she got. And, and, and here's what the Lord does, verse 16. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Isn't that unusual? But the, the woman answered and said, I, 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 I have no no husband. And I suppose she thought that would end that conversation. But Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. How did this all happen? We are not told. We only are left with speculation. Could it be that one of the reasons the other ladies in the village did not want to spend time with her is that she was uh, she crossed sexual boundaries? Was she flirtatious? Was that the cause of these five leaving her? Did she have eyes for others? Who, who knows? Was it something in the food she made for these guys? Did five die? What's up? Something is not good. And so the Lord reveals to her what she thought was a fairly well-kept secret. You have five husbands, and it gets worse. The one whom you now have is not your husband. Hmm. This you have said truly. She had five husbands. Uh, the marriage is all ended in some fashion. Her present partner is one who she's living with. They're not married. Why did, why did the Lord... <laughs> You know, when I think of Jesus, I think of a kind and compassionate, gentle personage, loving and sensitive. Why is he drumming up all this stuff? This is all woundedness in the life of this lady. What is the Lord up to? I think it's this. He knows she needs to know two things. She has to know what God is like, and she has to know what she is like. She has to know that God is holy, and she has to know that she is sinful. It's her nature. And he knew that before she would be willing to appreciate and appropriate his offer of living water, that is to say forgiveness, she has to be thirsty. And so in his conversation, he is not seeking to hurt her. There's plenty of hurt already there. He's conjuring up her thirst for what he has to offer for forgiveness. And so the Lord first helps her to come to grips with her own sin. Before she could appreciate his grace, she had to recognize her sin. That's the way it was with you and I, was it not, folks? Before she appreciated the grace he was so willing to offer, she had to appreciate the depth of her own sin. Someone said, conviction must always precede true conversion. And that's what the Lord was up to. You know how this works. Before you and I really appreciate and value a physician, we have to have a disease of sorts. And when we do, we have much more value for the one who could possibly heal us? Well, and this woman has to be persuaded that she has an affliction 
of a more serious kind even than cancer. She has a sin sickness, and it has separated her from her very creator. She has to find out that the great physician, this Jesus, could heal her of the consequences of her sin sickness. And the Lord knew this woman. This is amazing. He knew this woman, though he had not previously met her. He knew her. He knew everything about her. He could peer penetratingly into her heart, and he saw their guilt and, and shame of an unresolved kind. And in verse 19, the woman was just taken by all this, and she said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She knows he's no ordinary Jewish man. He knows her, though they had never previously met. She came to the conclusion he must be a prophet, maybe the prophet. The Samaritans and the Jews had this in common. They both expected a prophet like unto Moses to come on the scene. And maybe they got this from Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. You could read it at your leisure sometime. At any rate, she knows he's extraordinary. He's categorically different. He knows about me. But it, but, but it wasn't just that she was known. She was sensing that she was known and accepted. Do you know what that feels like? It's a rare commodity to be fully known and at the same time fully accepted. She's in the presence of one who somehow is persuading her that's how it is with him. He knows everything about her. He knows about the husbands. He knows about who she's living with. He knows about all this stuff. And yet she's sensing he's interested. He's concerned. He's not going to leave her. In fact, he wants to lead her into closer relationship with him. She's known and she's accepted for the first time perhaps in her entire life. And don't you see her parched soul is beginning to be quenched and she's beginning to get a taste of what it is to drink living water. And she says this in verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And you people, Jews, you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. I'll tell you what most people say who study the Bible. They say this was a, a ruse, a uh, diversionary tactic. He's getting close to her heart she is being moved towards recognition of her sin and repentance. The whole thing is uncomfortable, and she's trying to take the heat off her, so say some. And therefore, she brings up this, which looks on its face to be absolutely irrelevant. She's talking about a place of worship. Should it be on Mount Gerizim, or is the right place Jerusalem where the temple is? But as I was studying this, I began to think, oh, I, I don't think she's trying to use a diversionary technique at all. I think what's happening is this. She really is getting in touch with her sin, and she really is coming to embrace by faith the notion that somehow she could be forgiven and made right with God. And she is asking, in my opinion, a sincere question. She's bringing up a sincere matter. She's saying, 
I, I, I owe God. I, I, I am a sinner. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm coming to entertain the possibility of actually being okay with God, being right. Therefore, I have to offer sacrifice. That's all she knew. You get right with God by buying his favors. You have to make some sacrifice. You have to get some points with God. You have to do this for yourself. No one will do it for you. And so she's wondering, I, I'm going to offer this sacrifice, but where? What is the right place? She asks this one who she knows to have answers and to issues she's never dealt with before. Is it Mount Gerizim, she's wondering, where the Samaritans worshipped even to this very day? Or is it in, in Jerusalem? Which is the place? Where can I go to get right with God? What is the correct place in which I can offer worship and sacrifices to God? That's what she's up to. And in verse 21, Jesus said, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. <clears throat> he says to her, there is an hour coming. There is, a, there is a particular time when things are going to change. Uh, there is coming a decisive moment in human history that will revolutionize all things. And that hour, that moment, that, that time is the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection of this very Jesus who is speaking to the Samaritan woman at this particular moment. He is saying that reality as she knows it, as we know it, as humankind has known it, at a particular time, at a particular hour, will be entirely and radically changed. And when that hour comes, our emphasis on place of worship will give way to the person who is to be worshipped. And so he's saying to her, your question will soon become irrelevant the issue is not place, but it is person. And he continues to develop this theme in verse 22. He says, you worship, you, a Samaritan woman, uh, representing other Samaritans, you people worship what you do not know. Um, that could sound like a bit of a put-down, but he's just telling the truth. Uh, to Jesus, did you know all religious perspectives all faith perspectives are not equal. That's only the case in our politically correct society. But to the Lord, some things are true and some things are false. And he's essentially saying that Samaritan religion is false. You people worship out of ignorance. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you believe. We worship. We worship. Interesting. The word puts himself in a category of others. You Samaritans don't know what you're talking about in terms of faith perspectives, but we worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. I'm, I don't think reading too much into this as a Jew to tell you the Lord unashamedly identified himself as a Jew. Am I missing it? We, I think that means we Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. Uh, the Lord rather unashamedly uh, 
indicates his identification with this particular people group called, called the, the Jews. He's a Jewish man. Do you mind me pausing just for a second as a side note? Can you see the irrationality of anti-Semitism, hatred of Jews? Even in the name of Christ, many times in human history, can you see the irrationality of it? The Savior is a Jew. Can you see the flat-out irrationality of it? But the Nazis wore belt buckles that said, Gott by uns, God with us. And the Nazis had big signs outside of places like Auschwitz. You killed our God, now we kill you. Can you see the darkness and uh, devilishness of Jew hatred when the Savior himself identifies himself as a, a Jew? I just bring that to your attention because I want you to be nice to me. And so the Lord says salvation is of the Jews. What does that mean? Does it mean all Jews are saved? I wish. Not true. People are saved the same way, by the grace and mercy of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Everybody comes the same way to the foot of the cross. Sadly, today, some say the Jews are already right with God through Moses, therefore we don't need to tell them about Jesus. Do you know, I, I'm a little uh, uh, unrestrained tonight, so I'll tell you, but, uh, but, but, but it's just a fact. I'm not commenting on, I'm just telling you the fact. The Pope, this Pope, not too many months ago, came up with an edict saying the Catholic Church will no longer take the gospel to Jewish people. That's an official papal decree because he says we have wronged the Jews and for too long have offended them. and They have a rich history and tradition and uh, their access to God is through Moses. They don't need the Savior Jesus. If you put my people into a gas chamber, you do less harm to us than if you withhold the gospel from us. If you withhold the gospel from anybody, that person can't hear and believe they're destined to eternity apart from Almighty God. Uh, no, Jews are not saved by being Jews but, and Jews will never be saved without hearing about a Jewish Savior. I hope you continue to know that Jesus died for all people. I don't think Jews should be favored by no means, but I don't think they should be excluded. And we're seeing more and more of that sort of thing. But Jesus said salvation is of the Jews. So if he didn't mean Jews are saved automatically, what does he mean? God the Father chose this ethnic group as the vehicle through whom the Savior 
would come. God chose this particular and peculiar, I admit it, people group to be the one from whom the Savior of the world would come with a message of salvation to every other people group in the world. Uh, Folks, the Bible that we cherish is very Jewish. The Savior whom we worship is very Jewish. If you have discovered a non-Jewish Savior, you have not found the real Savior. Now, these are just the words of Jesus. He says, we know what we're talking about, for salvation is of the Jews. And so he says in verse 23, an hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. You know what he's saying to the Samaritan woman? Don't worry about whether it's Mount Gerizim or uh, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. You could have forgiveness right now, just as you are right where you are, for I, the Lamb of God, stand in your presence. You need not go up to Mount Gerizim. You need not go up to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice for God, for I, the Lamb of God, stand right in your presence. You could accept the gift of salvation right now, right where you are, and you could become a grateful worshiper right in this place, right now. Why? Because, verse 24, God is spirit. So now we find out what kind of God God is. God is spirit. What does that mean? It means he's not confined to a particular place. He is spirit. He is non-material. That means he's not confined to a body as, as we are. That means he is in all places all the time. He is omnipresent. We here are only present, but we are not omnipresent. If you are here, I can tell you, as a matter of fact, you ain't elsewhere. You are wherever your body happens to be at the time. But this is not true of God. Because he is spirit, he is in every place at every time, and that means he can be accessed by faith, in any place, at any time. That's what the Lord is communicating to this lady. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God who is spirit, the text says, must be worshiped with our spirit. What does that mean? He must be worshiped with the non-material part of our being. What does that mean? Lots of people take their body to church on Sunday. That's good. That's not good enough. Because this text is saying since God is spirit, he expects to be worshipped in spirit. A lot of people who take their body to church on Sunday are not really worshipping God with the non-material part of their being, which is their heart. God wants to be worshipped with our heart, not just by moving our body to a seat, a pew, in some church on Sunday. The churches are filled with people who are not actually worshiping God with spirit and truth. That is not very uh, true of most of us here, but I'm talking about a general uh, sort of observation. Many people there's some, think there's some kind of magic by simply showing up 
to church on Sunday, particularly on Easter and, and Christmas and those particular holidays. No, the fact that you're just bringing your body to a place of worship doesn't give you any points with God. I'm not making this up. God is spirit. Those who pretend to worship him must do so in spirit and truth. He wants to be worshipped from the depths of our non-material being, from our hearts. You know what worship is? It means to attribute worth and value. Jesus said, I'm looking for worshipers who will attribute worth and value to me wherever their bodies take them. I don't want a person simply to offer me worship in the confines of a building for an hour or two on Sunday. When they go back to work on Monday, I want them to attribute worth and value to me there. In other words, the Lord Jesus is saying, I'm looking for people who do more than participate in a worship service. I'm looking for people who worship me as a lifestyle. That's what he's saying. And then he says, I'm looking for those who worship me in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? It means we cannot worship the true God unless we are worshiping the true God in a way that is consistent with what he has already told us about himself in the Bible. So today you have a lot of people who say, have you had this conversation with folks and you talk about the Lord and they say, I cannot believe in a God who would even have a place called hell. Have you ever heard anything like that? I cannot believe in a God who would send anyone to hell. I cannot believe in a God who would do this or who would do that. I cannot believe in a God who insists he is the only way. That makes him seem so narcissistic, such an egomaniac. I had someone tell me that recently. <sighs> to worship God in spirit. Oh, but then they'll say, but I believe in God. No, no. To worship God in spirit and truth means we have to render worship to God on the terms in which he has declared himself to be. He has declared himself to be holy and just and a consuming fire. I cannot reduce him to my conception of who I think God should be and claim that to be true worship. That doesn't work. Well, so the woman's listening to all this. And she says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And listen, listen. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you. The beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, the one who is preexistent deity, transcendent God, the one who is the agent of creation, the God who knows all things, even our thoughts before we speak them, the God who can call into existence things that were not, this God who has no beginning, no end, this perfectly holy God, this all-powerful one, this only begotten Son of Almighty God, <laughs> said... To her, I who speak to you am he. You talk about God coming near. Uh, uh, nobody else would. Her husband's left her. The woman in the village 
uh, wanted nothing to do with her. The Jews would not go through her land lest they get cooties or something. And this otherwise unapproachably holy Jesus, uh, who always was and evermore shall be, and before whom every knee shall bow, he stands in her midst and says to her, these are powerful words, I know you're looking. You have some messianic expectation. I, I know there's something in you that's leading you to expect, wait for, and look for the one who will come and make all things new. I, he said, who speak to you am he. What would we do if he didn't become enfleshed? How would we access him? Tell me. What ladder of good works could we construct of sufficient elevation to give us access to heaven? We can't. So he condescended, took on our flesh to make himself acceptable. And he says to a Samaritan woman, I who speak to you am he. The Messiah, Jesus, came near to that Samaritan woman. And I want to close with an important thought. This same Messiah, Jesus, who came near to her some 2,000 years ago, I believe has come near to you and I in our generation. And the same Jesus who made this offer of living water, which is forgiveness and cleansing and acceptance and eternal life, the same Jesus who made that offer to the Samaritan woman 2,000 years ago, that same Jesus makes the offer today. I ask you a question. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Do you know enough about you? Are you in touch? Are you willing to acknowledge your sin in thought, in word and deed? Sin, which is like a sickness for which there is no cure in our own strength. Sin, which separates from God. Sin, which has left you like the woman at the well, ashamed and filled with guilt. Are you, are you, are you sufficiently in touch with all that reality that a thirst has been conjured up in your life for the kind of good water, living water that only Jesus can provide. Now you say, I'm looking, I'm waiting, I'm searching. I'm... But the Savior says to us in no less striking terms than he did to her 2,000 years ago, I who speak to you am he. Is Jesus speaking to your heart tonight? Listen to his voice. And before we take leave of one another tonight, maybe you'll take your thirst to the room back there, the Connection Center, where you'll meet up with folks just like you, except maybe different, because maybe they have found their thirst to be quenched by a personal relationship with this Jesus, and they could speak to you about your thirst Please make it your business before we dismiss to go back there uh, tonight. And as you think about doing that and your 
thirst and your parched soul and your yearning for forgiveness and this notion of being fully known by God, yet at the same time being fully accepted, if that is something you're thirsty and hungry for, then don't leave here without speaking to someone more precisely about that so as to help you connect with the only one who could quench your thirst. And while you think about that, let me pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we bow, all of us, again, not just physically, bodily, but in our hearts, for you have peered into our hearts and in various ways for most of us here, um, you have shown us what we look like. We look like ones who have disobeyed and broken your commandments. We look like ones who are afflicted with an inherited condition called sin. We look like ones who are troubled by it because the very things we don't want to do, we repeatedly do, and the good intentions we have, the things we want to do, we find ourselves not doing and we cry out, who shall set us free? And you say, I will. I, who stand in your midst, even tonight, can set you free. I can heal you. I can cleanse you. I could make things right between you and your Creator. I, who know you, am willing to accept you, but you must accept me. I pray, O oh God, in the power of your Holy Spirit, that is exactly what would happen in the lives of those who tonight stand in sore need of living water. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.